Hi, everyone. Before today's episode, I want to share news about a little promotion and ask a little favor of you. We're hoping that you'll help to increase the visibility of our podcast. Apparently, in order to do this, we must catch the attention of our robot overlords. To activate the algorithm for this, we need as many of you as are willing to write a review of our show on Apple Podcasts on the very same day. We're setting that day as Monday, August 2nd, a week from the posting of this week's episode. The review doesn't have to be very long, and you should reflect your honest assessment of the podcast. Of course, it would be particularly helpful if you rated it highly and if you had positive things to say. That would also keep me from descending into a pit of existential despair, but no pressure. Now here's the good part. If you submit your review on August 2nd, I'll send you a link to my webinar on the perils of inferiority complex, which is paradoxically mainly a problem for high achievers, so I know many of you will be interested. Additionally, 20 of you who write reviews will be randomly selected to have an individual free 30-minute writing consultation with me. Yes, I'm as excited about this as I hope you are, because it'll be an awesome way for me to learn about the writing challenges you're facing. So again, writing a review of the show on Apple Podcasts on August 2nd will help us get the news out to others who might benefit. For more details, go to our webpage, 100writingmistakes.org, and click on the Coaching, Workshop, and Promotions tab. Again, that's 100writingmistakes.org. Thanks, and now on with the show. Hi, and welcome to 100 Mistakes Academic Writers Make and How to Fix Them, a podcast for academics and other writers who need to get work done. I'm Stephanie Dunson, PhD, a writing coach and consultant with over 20 years of experience working with faculty at some of the nation's top colleges and universities. My aim in making this podcast is to help you name your challenges and make adjustments that will allow you to develop a sustainable and meaningful writing routine. In each episode, I'll focus on one of what I've observed to be the 100 most common writing challenges faculty members face. Then I'll offer proven fixes that you can adapt to your particular writing routine. Although some of the challenges are unique to academics, most will be familiar to writers of all stripes. Alrighty then, let's get started. Mistake number five, sacrificing writing time to do excessive research. Let's be honest, for most of us, doing research is just more gratifying than writing. Who doesn't love burrowing into the stacks of a library to emerge with armloads of delicious sources or hunkering in the lab to design and administer experiments? What's better than the adventure of field research or the satisfaction of compiling data to pour over? But a problem arises when the joys and safety of research eclipse our efforts to get writing done. Now, if you're someone who has no problem striking a balance between writing and research, or if you're in a discipline where standards of research are preset, terrific. Shut this off and get back to doing that thing that you do so well. But if you tend to put off writing to do more and more research, if you have a hard time deciding when you have enough external material to move your arguments forward, in short, if you too commonly feel like Alice tumbling down the old research rabbit hole, stay tuned. 
In 2017, media studies professor Jolie Jensen published an article entitled The Myth of One More Source in the Chronicle of Higher Education. I highly recommend it. In it, she proposes that our tendency to over-rely on research is largely a symptom of curiosity or fear. In the case of curiosity, we love learning. What commonly draws us into academia is our voracious intellectual curiosity, our fascination with finding answers, and our insatiable appetite for discovery. And doing research checks all of these boxes. But it's also important for us to resist pouring all of our time and energy into research, especially when it stands in the way of writing. As for fear, that ties into our concerns about being thorough, our need for confirmation, and our inferiority biases. Certainly, it's important that our research is complete, coherent, and cohesive. As academics, we have a core obligation to demonstrate our understanding of pre-existing discourse, and it's vital that we adequately substantiate our claims and arguments. But even after years of study, some of us still suffer from grad school complex, the vestigial concern that we don't know enough to speak with authority without some level of external confirmation. So we're drawn by the sense of security that seems to come from couching our emerging ideas in the public assertions of others. But I'd offer another important reason for our attraction to gathering sources. Of all the things we're called on to do as academics, writing, teaching, administration, research is the only thing we're actually trained to do. We love to do research because it's something we unequivocally feel like we do well. It should come as no surprise, then, that research can be like a familiar old armchair, comforting to settle into, but hard to pull ourselves out of. So how do you set your fixation with research aside and get down to writing? In other words, what's the fix? There are, of course, many kinds of research, so there need to be multiple ways to approach this challenge, but there are three fixes that commonly serve my clients. This may seem strange, but I'll start by evoking two hard and fast rules my mother taught me about grocery shopping. Always have something to eat before you go, and always make a list. These two align very nicely with the first two fixes of today's topic. First, always eat something before heading to the market. If you don't fortify yourself before you head out, you're much more likely to buy things just because they look tasty. Even if you don't feel particularly hungry before you enter the store, seeing all of that lovely food temptingly displayed whets your appetite and can lead you to add more to your cart than you need. The best way to fortify yourself as preparation for research is to flesh out your ideas as much as you can before you start gathering sources. In fact, if possible, write a loose draft of your project that's built solely upon your own ideas, observations, and questions before you start research. Writing a draft first, even a skeleton draft, places your ideas at the center of your work so that as you move into research, your sources serve your ideas rather than displacing or standing in for them. Okay, back to the supermarket. Did you make a shopping list? No? You know well enough what you need, right? Or maybe you thought you'd just decide what to get once you step through those sliding glass doors. Bad idea. The problem with this is that seeing all the shelves jammed with tasty books, oops, I mean food, 
can make you forget what you came for and can overwhelm you with choices. If you've made a list in advance, you'll be able to navigate the aisles much more purposefully. Of course, even with a list, there's always the occasional opportunistic purchase. The granola that you like is on sale. The strawberries look particularly good. A new laundry detergent seems like it's worth trying out. It's okay to add a few unplanned items to your cart as long as you're mainly guided by your shopping list. If you generally stick to that, you'll stay on track. And once you've crossed everything off, you know it's time to head to the checkout line. The parallel in research is to get a sense of what you need before you start compiling sources. That is, to approach your research with specific intention rather than selecting and reading sources just because they generally relate to your topic. Before you delve into new material, figure out exactly what you hope to learn and how you hope the information you uncover will support your ideas. Make a list. Ask yourself what you can already substantiate for yourself without additional sources. Do you need to complement, complete, or shore up the argument you're making? Ask yourself exactly what you need to find, what need it fills in your argument, and most importantly, reflect on what the information will allow you to do in your discussion that you otherwise wouldn't be able to do. Even when your sources provide different information than you'd originally anticipated, Going into your exploration with a stated objective gives you a point of reference that can help you more effectively navigate new material. We'll leave the grocery store analogy behind to focus on the third fix because it bears our direct attention. It is to make writing a central feature of doing research rather than putting it off until you've gathered and processed all your materials. If you're someone who generally does most of your research before putting pen to paper, you're undoubtedly familiar with the phenomenon of brain jam. That's what happens when, after the fact, you're faced with the gargantuan task of recalling all of the observations, articulating all of the arguments, and reviving all of the questions that arose while you were researching. It can feel like you're trying to push a wagon load of bricks up a hill. You might get the job done, but sakes alive, that's some hard work. The easiest way to avoid this situation is to keep an ongoing journal throughout the research process. To be clear, this is not the same as making notes about what you're finding in your research, but rather it's keeping notes about what you're thinking as you're doing research. For those of you who follow this podcast, this might sound a lot like process writing. And a research journal of this sort is definitely another kind of metacognitive space. But here, rather than recording what you were thinking as you were writing, you're tracking what you're thinking as you're researching. When you keep this kind of journal, writing becomes a way of processing what you're finding in your research, and it captures the way new material is synthesizing with your ideas in the very moment your refined insights are emerging. In your journal, keep an ongoing list of the questions that are arising and make note of new insights you want to explore or think more about. Think of it as a record of the conversation you're having with your sources as you're doing research. And it's vital that you write down your ideas as they occur to you. Otherwise, you risk losing sight of or simply forgetting details that might ultimately add substance to your paper. 
Now, surely there are a lot of things you might think about when you're doing research, and not all of it may be related to your focus. Is it important to write everything down? If not, how do you know which observations are worth noting? Well, that comes back to the earlier point about approaching your sources with intention. For instance, if you noted in advance that you're reading a particular article because you need to know more about a specific point, you should privilege the insights you're gaining that relate to that. That doesn't mean that you have to completely shut down any other ideas that are forming. In truth, some of the most important insights that you have might come from unexpected turns in your thinking and in the research. But you should be aware of the primary lens you're bringing to the material. One way to determine which observations are worth noting is to use a guiding statement of intention that is something like, Today, I am looking for, or looking at, A, in order to find B, because that will allow me to do C. In this equation, A is the place you're looking, or the thing you're looking at, B is the thing you're looking for, and C is the reason why it's relevant to the project you're working on. Extending the ABC formula also may prove useful in addressing another research challenge, that is, knowing when you've gathered enough material. As your project starts to take form, add this phrase, and this is vitally important to my argument because D. Including this additional variable makes the resulting equation not only about stating intention, but also about justifying the need for material that may prove superfluous on closer examination. In essence, it sets a boundary on gathering resources. Now, what this looks like in practice will vary depending on the nature and the stage of your research. It might be a situation where you routinely stop whenever a thought strikes you. You might stop less frequently, but write more significant commentary when you do pause to reflect. Or you might be more absorbed into fully observing the material and take time to process what you've learned when you complete an individual research session. And of course, you might well find that you end up doing some combination of all of these. Whichever suits you and your project, writing this way as you do research keeps you actively engaged in your material and keeps you from stockpiling valuable insights that you'll have a hard time retrieving later. Even with this level of focus, you will inevitably record observations that don't relate to your topic or that lose relevance as your project evolves. It's often difficult to leave behind ideas that feel substantial. In fact, you might find yourself struggling to find a way to fit your ideas into a project, even if they're ideas that over time have become tangential. When in doubt, ask yourself honestly whether the information is truly contributing to the focus of your project or whether it's a fascinating distraction. In the realm of fiction, William Faulkner described it rather brutally as killing your darlings. But the nice thing about scholarship is that you can forego the execution. Rather, you can set those promising bits aside for future projects, conference papers, articles, even topics for future courses. In that way, the research journal can also serve as a kind of incubator for future projects. It's worth mentioning that because a research journal is not the research paper itself, you needn't be concerned about the quality of the writing you do in it. Nevertheless, you may find that as you look over what you've recorded, there are sections that end up being perfectly appropriate additions to the article or chapter you're generating. 
That's because occasionally a point you've made spontaneously, an insight that you gain genuinely, might end up having more substance than you realized when you initially jotted it down. I came across an example of this recently in my own work. The other day, I chanced to pull a book from my shelves that I hadn't read since the first year of my doctoral program, which was a long time ago. And when I opened it, I saw that the inside of the back cover was jammed with my own handwriting. When I went to the page number that was scribbled on the top of the note, I discovered that what I had written was actually the continuation of side notes that I started that had filled the margins of the original page. Clearly, something had grabbed my attention in the moment that I felt compelled to comment on in what I'm sure I expected to be a quick note, but that ended up pulling me into a deeper meditation on the subject. The thing that was remarkable as I read through it now is that in hindsight, I saw that what I had written could easily have served as the prospectus for the dissertation I proposed two years later. In fact, the whole rationale and general structure of what would become my dissertation was written out almost in its entirety in a forgotten note that I had scribbled out spontaneously two years before the fact. To be clear, I didn't write this note out as a statement of what I thought would be my dissertation topic. The formal idea for that didn't come to me consciously for at least another year. But in that random note that I'd written in the infancy of my interest in the topic, I caught a moment of my mind moving more swiftly than my intention or my awareness. If I'd captured that in a research journal rather than tucking it away in the back cover of a book I'd soon forget about, I could have saved myself a lot of stress and time a few years later. Oh well. Live and learn, my friends. Live and learn. Well, that's today's episode. If this mistake applies to you, try out this fix and let me know how things worked out. Remember, all of the fixes I offer are meant to be flexible interventions. There may be ways you apply my suggestions that look different from what I've described, but that work for you. In that case, it's always terrific to hear the ways you adapt a fix that makes it a more meaningful match for your particular writing routine. Also, I'd love to get you involved in the podcast. Let me know if you have a story or a solution you'd like to share for an upcoming episode. You can reach me through the contact link on my webpage, 100writingmistakes.org. I'm going on vacation, but I don't want to leave you all hanging, so the next episode will be a quick fix on preparing your writing for a smooth transition into the school year. And don't forget that on August 2nd, we're hoping you'll review our show on Apple Podcast. While you're there, why not subscribe if you haven't already, and you'll automatically receive new episodes every two weeks as soon as they're posted. And as always, spread the news about the podcast to colleagues and friends you think might benefit. Because faculty are the most underserved writers on any college campus. And with your help, I want to change that.